Welcome to the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, the tirade filled movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. And I'm William Henry Johnson III. I need to, I need to, I think I need to do the full name for such a uh, debauched setting of which we're about to embark. See, I feel fi- I figured you were going to do like, you know, 1920s, 19 aughts, where you're like doing the W.H. Johnson, where it's like you don't have a first name, you don't have a middle name, you're just initials. Like, now see, well, there's no sound for the first part. So, yeah, no, maybe I could be a silent movie star and I just don't speak at all. And that would probably make a lot of you. Hey, I, I smell <laughs> podcast readings that could work. That could work. Ladies and gentlemen, we're damn glad to have you folks. This is all for tantrum's sake, where shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate. In the end, we encourage you all to love what you love, but for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. This week, very advanced, kind of like hot on the Oscar trail here, we're talking Babylon from Damien Chazelle, and we brought in a guest. As usual, we needed to spice this up a little bit better than just the two of us lame asses so katie glidewell from the blonde in front is back in here today say hello to the good folks katie well hello boys how are you doing <laughs> clearly <laughs> trying to do my best as good as you. 20s like you oh, two were you like a... both the cat's pajamas and i'm so i'm just thrilled to be here <laughs> there it is cat's pajamas <laughs> All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't remember how this goes, our format is this. The recommending lover goes first, and that is going to be Miss Glidewell. Uh, she will go first to have five uninterrupted minutes to shower her praise and state her high-minded case for what is sounding like her favorite film of the year. The haters, or at least the lower raters than Katie, will follow second with their own five uninterrupted minutes to present their counterpoints or any manner of intellectual scorched earth. After that, we'll open it up for 15 to 50 minutes of a shared conversation where the hissy fit really gets chippy. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what band we have to strike up to do this, but let's go. Oh, we can just recycle some of the music from one of our previous episodes or something and then... Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I... I, not to jump into things that'll be in the discussion. I maybe I I just wasn't keyed in, but I didn't catch it. I, like that city, like City of Stars, kind of showed up, right? Yep. Well, I didn't. I want to know why, Don, that you don't you didn't key into it. Yeah, because City of Stars isn't memorable, just like La La Land itself. Ooh, see, oh, that be fighting words. Oh, yeah, right. well, this is going to be good, Katie. The first five minutes are yours. All right. Uh, Yeah. Babylon, directed, written, edited by Damon Chazelle. Uh, It may be my favorite film of the year. As I've um, said to many, it is a dazzling, delightful, decadent dive in the debauchery and depravity of the dream of being on the big screen. A mild stone in showing the magic and mayhem of the movies. It's basically... I mean, the first, I think, what, 25 to 30 minutes. It's one of those things that I wish I could have had my phone so I can actually tell what time the time amount or the amount of time that's spent. But it's Mulan, Marouge mixed with Boogie Nights and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with a badly uh, reused and rehashed score from La La Land. I mean, you have. Uh, well, I was telling Will before we started, uh, this is. This is basically the movie version of an SNL sketch of Stefan, like describing it's like the hottest club in Hollywood is Babylon. You've got elephants defecating on people. You've got 
pregnant women who are eight months pregnant in shiny silver dresses dancing. You've got full frontal nudity. You've got um, urination on people. You've got uh, everything you could ask for in the 1920s, all right before the, um, the opening credits or opening title of the film. And I loved it. I think Brad Pitt is amazing. I think Margot Robbie is amazing. I think this is a star-making performance for Diego Calva. Uh, Jovan Adepo is incredible. Lee Jun Lee. Um, those are the five, I think, key characters in the film. You have the side stories with each of them. And then, of course, you have different, more um, even intricate side stories um, with other characters. It is a romance. It's action. I mean, the first half of the film is all comedy. And I, I was dying. And it is just, just, I mean, you can name, I can name at least eight films other than the ones that I used to describe it as um, a love letter to films. It's about going to the movies, making movies, you know, the ups and downs, um, the love of it, and also how it can just completely destroy your heart. Gene Smart. Uh, is probably going to get nominated. Well, she may. She has an amazing monologue. I can see this film uh, probably getting nominated all across the board in many different areas. And also, I can see it not getting nominated. I know this is quite a divisive uh, movie, even right now, from not even half the things I've said. Like, me making the comment that it's possibly my favorite film of the year Woo, did that start a wildfire? Let me tell you. I mean, there's a lot of people who have thoughts about this, and rightfully so. I mean, it goes to, it is, uh, let me just say this, the first half, there's a lot of things that people may not expect to see, and you got to get ready for it, because the first half, it goes to this whole Caligula, uh, you know, debauchery, uh, in with sex and nudity and all that stuff and then at the end you get this entirely different depravity that goes down to dante's inferno and levels of hell i think that's pretty realistic in different aspects of the hollywood scene back then and even now i mean there are people that are into some kinky crazy stuff and as long as no one gets hurt you know, unwillingly or, or uh, something that they don't want to do. I mean, that's fine with them. Some people do, some people don't in this. I'm not going to give away anything. I love the cameos that it had. It has surprise people in it. You can watch, you can look at the IMDb. I don't, I did not know a number of these people were going to be, um, be in it. I love the fact that Margot Robbie has someone that, uh, People are always saying is her doppelganger in the film and they share a number of scenes. That is great. While I, this may be my favorite film of the year, it definitely has um, some parts that I did not think were great. The score, I, as I said in the beginning, I thought was rehashed from La La Land. Uh, I thought that was actually kind of lazy in a number of ways because when you get to the drama part, I could definitely hear a lot of City of Stars, which I thought was lazy. But I think the performances, the direction that Damien Chazelle gives, is the, the, I mean, the direction that he's able to get these performances out of his people is absolutely amazing. There's some cinematography that is absolutely astounding. 
some scenes that, I mean, I can't even imagine how many extras they had in different aspects of the film, but uh, it is, if you love film, if you love going to the movies, if you love the movie going aspects of it and the history of film with the number of people that it gives nods to also like Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, uh, Fatty Arbuckle, different circumstances that happen with them. I think this is a film for you. Just be prepared. This is not a G. This is not for kids. And this is not for the faint of heart because there are a lot of things in here that, uh, you know, Hollywood probably would have kept under the rug and um, gone away. But I loved it. I love to see it again. And for three hours, I was amazed at how quickly it went. I mean, the first, I think, hour to maybe 90 minutes of the film is actually supposed to be a 24 hour span that ha that everything that happens in a day. And it is crazy. I say go see it. I loved it. Uh, and you guys take it away. All right. All right. Will, you are up next. All righty. Let me put my timer on here and I'm going to start. All right. Um, well, I actually kind of agree with Katie on a lot of this. Um, there are definitely two halves of this film. Okay. Um, and, uh, and one thing we may discuss later is, uh, and something that me and Katie discuss off camera or mic or whatever, is that, you know, her and I, and, and more so her with her expertise, you know, we're, we've, we dip into a lot of horror films and cult films and things like that. So, I think some of the uh, graphicness and severity that is displayed in the first 20, 25 minutes or whatever, I don't even know how long at that point. Um, you know, I think, I think maybe people that aren't used to seeing that, you know, are um, maybe not sure how to process that. The only thing that shocked me about it was that I was seeing it in the big, one of the biggest theaters in Phoenix with an audience. And that it was in a mainstream movie that could be, you know, probably nominated for an Oscar at some point. So, but some of the stuff that's going on, the debauchery, the, 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 uh, you know, decadence on display. I mean, yeah, if you told me that I was going to be sitting in a theater um, and watching people piss in each other's mouths and bathe in elephant shit and, you know, uh, have full frontal nudity and all this crazy stuff, like I, probably would have been that the what would surprise me is that i could see that in a cinema you know that's playing right next to strange world you know that's just, it's just that's the strange part about it but i think it is off-putting to some people and they're not sure how to capture that me on the other hand when i say that there's two movies here is i really enjoyed that debauchery part i really enjoyed the the, the camera work the editing the the music how everything was put together what really bothered me was that it essentially goes away from that and becomes a fairly generic safe story at a certain point. There's kind of a turning point, with the exception of it of a, a little sequence towards the end involving Tobey Maguire that once again kind of went back to the beginning and was super creepy as hell and frightening. Um, it it played it safe with all its characters. It went down expected routes, and I don't just mean that. You know, a lot of people are saying like, oh, this, you know, this ending is like Boogie Nights. But I, I not only did I see Boogie Nights, but there was a lot of singing in the rain, probably intentionally so. 
Um, there are sequences that are full on the closing half hour of Goodfellas. Um, and there's also just a lot of sequences that we've seen done before. That that's that's the biggest letdown for me, and that's why I can't give it like a full like four or five stars. I usually give it like a three and a half. Is that a movie that was willing to take such dramatic risks with its subject matter and material plays it so safe towards the end. And I would say the last hour, because as soon as you get there's there is this amazing quality about Brad Pitt in the movie where and this is very intentionally done, but they make Brad Pitt kind of like this invincible superhero almost in the first 24 hours. You know, he's he can drink (laughs) incredible amounts of booze and still drive and get up and have fun and have sex and and then get up and do a movie shoot and just turn the switch on and suddenly be able to act and avoid spears hitting him and explosions and stuff like that. And I get that's very intentional. That's kind of, that's kind of done to emphasize the legend of some of these former actors, you know? Uh, But what really bothered me was that when you get to the second half of the film, including a very, uh, to me, a very, uh, we won't go into spoilers now, I guess, but a very, cop-out kind of way for his character to finish the story. Um, it, it just plays it safe. You kind of know beat for beat what's going to happen. The first hour, you have no freaking clue what's going to happen. You know you, you know that maybe Margot Robbie is going to become a star, but you don't know at what cost and how it's going to affect everything. But by the end of the movie, you know what's going to happen to her. You know what's going to happen to him. Uh, Brad Pitt, you know what's going to happen to Manny. You kind of get an idea that it treads down familiar paths. Um, so in the end, you end up kind of having this crazy sliding door effect where, like, one minute you're getting this bravura, no-holds-barred, you know, uh, storytelling, and then the next you're kind of getting paint-by-number, you know, uh, plot conveniences and uh, expected tropes and paths being um, uh, written. Sorry, my my timer threw me off. So it, it's definitely a movie of two halves. And whether you are shocked by the first part or bored by the second part or vice versa, whether you prefer that kind of thing, um, you know, it, it's, it's harder to recommend because I don't know who is going to be offended, who's not going to be offended, who's going to be bored, who's not going to be bored at certain parts. It's, it's a tough film to recommend. So that's why I gave it a three and a half out of five. It's right in the middle for me. It kind of goes in both directions. Love parts. Eight parts. Yeah, I tell you what, um, to just kind of jump right to the next five. Um, I'm in a I'm in a challenging to difficult place of trying to process and figure this film out. I haven't written the review yet. Um, I know I need to in time for the embargo to be one of the cool kids that gets in there first. But um no, um I, I'm closer to Will than I am to Katie, but I but I'm right there with where Katie is where I'll just say the good parts first. Like the craft of the film is off the off the fucking charts. I mean, the um, production design, Linus Sangren, cinematography, the way he can just move through scenes. And we've seen him swoop through things that I never thought you could move through before uh, in places like La La Land and even a little bit of First Man. But to to kind of go through this, the energy of this party scene over and over again and kind of show you different places and ways you can go just impressed me to no end. I, I really appreciated the... Um, uh, like the backgrounds, especially in that first hour where 
something will be happening in your foreground. Brad Pitt will be talking to Diego Calver or something like that, whatever's going on. And then behind them, like people are falling out of windows or of course the, the, the sunlight scene, you know, trying to get the magic hour thing where there's an entire movie thing happening just to get Brad Pitt a kiss on screen and, and just the, the layers and depth of what they're going for from a production standpoint uh, and extras and second unit standpoint, all this stuff is amazing. Um, I didn't pick up, so much of the rehash of the La La Land stuff. I know that's kind of Justin Hurwitz's kind of thing just to kind of be jazzy. So I kind of just let it be jazzy. And, and um, where I still think his music is, is far and away one of the rehash or not one of the better scores of the year where that that's an, that's an easy one for me. Um, the hard part is for me where I, I've, I land at three out of five. I don't do halves cause I'm not a, you know, a chintzy shit letterbox guy like, well, um, so I, I, you're welcome. Um, so no, I, I, I landed three because um, that pendulum, that pendulum is difficult. I don't see it as hard halves maybe as much as Will does, but like you have, you have excesses that you want to celebrate and show and depict in all that kind of way with that matches the era and whatnot. And that's all well and good. Um, that's, it's, it's, that's exhilarating, that first hour and all that. But at the same time, even in that first hour, you have these pendulum swings of like, all right, where's reality come into play? Where does an arc come into play? And at some point, it does try to be more serious and affectionate to the movie industry that's that it wants to honor and love, especially when you get to it, you know, Damien Chazelle's, you know, Nolan-esque ending of like, he's one of those guys where all of a sudden now the last eight minutes of his movies are going to be a swirl of this is what it all meant for me kind of moment. Uh, I dug it in La La Land because it's set to a song. It's set to a kind of a um, an epilogue of, of a relationship. And here it's obviously an epilogue where it's 20 years later. Diego comes back to the old city and, and has those feelings and memories. And to have the the montage finishes like oh wait this was this is all meant to be how much i love the movies as if we're trying to scorsese our way to cinema and all that but so for the movie to swing where it wants to swing along the way of like hey at some point i need to be serious about something or hey at some point this needs to matter a little more than just fun and games and excesses for excess's sake and i don't know if that really if that glue is quite there um the effort is by far there like you said brad pitt and like others have said brad pitt um has this stoicism that crumbles and fades because age catches up to his character and i could see that being where how would that pride whittle and chip away as it does and then margot robbie being just a, a screaming banshee of a character that at some point also has to kind of grow up have peaks and valleys and either flame out or or turn into something else and whether that character can or can't is part of it and i guess diego calva has to be kind of our you know our virgil through dante's hell kind of thing where uh, how can that guy get into the get into this business not be corrupted come out shining through at the end if he can and if he doesn't where are those scars at of sorts and when you ah, when when all of that kind of occurs and goes down in just such a extreme way it's just a very difficult thing to balance i think that's the word i'm thinking of not so much in terms of having it and cutting it but balancing it balancing the reverence for it all versus the showcase of it all excess for excess's sake because by the time margot ruby is shaking a goddamn rattlesnake off her neck i'm like for i don't know how long that scene goes on uh i was like oh, okay man we're really going there and, and then then she's puking at a dinner party later where i'm not so much revolted i'm just more like how long are we going to play this note on the piano here? And that's where I was kind of just 
balance. Uh, I felt this movie's three hour plus running time. Um, I don't feel it in the first hour because it is exhilarating and it, and it amps you up. But man, that that middle half of career transition is is tricky. Obviously, you have a nice flourish at the end and, and a descent, like Will says, into a place that that makes sure you really hammer it hard. Like, hey, this wasn't going to turn out well. But at the same time, I just don't know if it's balanced enough to be a celebration and a display at the same time. I was I was having trouble. I was having trouble. Hmm. All right. Before we get to our crosstalk here, let me kind of take care of the um, we will break for a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, yeah, I. Whew, this, there's a lot here. Always is. <laughs> I think uh, you explained it a lot better than I could, but I think we're on the same page, Don, because that that is, I think I was attacking it a little bit more from the um, storytelling level. It just, like I said, it got to a part, it got to a point for me where it just kind of devolved into very typical paint by number storytelling where I knew exactly where everything was going to go. And since we're going to be in the spoiler territory now, I have a big issue with, you know, Brad Pitt killing himself <laughs> like that to me seems like a very dramatic cop out for that character okay. to end. Like, of course, like he's not the man he used to be, so he'll kill himself. I think that's not only been done a billion times before, but also just kind of a cheap way to end that character, especially when you have somebody like Margot Robbie who literally walks off into the fades to black. You mm-hmm. know, which I thought was a nice touch, um, and you really have no idea. It kind of adds to that mystical element of it. But I do like what you said about the balance. It is it is interesting because you you do have that tonal shift, um, you know, and with the exception of like I said that Tobey Maguire scene, which kind of gets you back a little bit into the beginning. But you know, and this this seems like it's always been kind of a joke in Hollywood. You know, it uh, it happened last year with Belfast. You know, there's the scene of the family watching the movie and being in wonder. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And it seems like this is the year where everyone's doubling down on that because you've got <laughs> Empire yeah. of Light. Um, you know, this movie ends with people. I mean, and there, I'm sure there's like three or four other examples I just can't think of, but <clears throat> it, it is very weird that it does end on this, like, it, it almost feels like it's giving an excuse, like, well, all that debauchery was worth it because you get to see Robert Patrick's head split open and come back together again. Yeah. You know, like, and it was a very weird tonal thing because it's almost like, yeah, like I said, it's like excusing that behavior. Um, and, uh, and I'll go into that ending montage later when we talk about it, but uh, I was happy with some of it, but um, yeah, it, it, this, it, you are kind of pulled in every direction, you know, and you kind of sit there at the end and go like, well, I don't really know what to feel like, you know, mm. from one second to the next. So. Yeah. Katie, how do you feel about just balance of it all? I think the balance, uh, I actually, well, there's a number of things in the film that actually angered me, like with some of the character decisions, like the whole, when you were talking about the rattlesnake scene, um, the mm-hmm. whole reason for that is because uh, Margaret Nellie was 
Margot Robbie's character was so affected by two people that she heard when she was in the bathroom that she had no clue who they were, what right. their association with this film. And yet that gave her that like such an emotion um, that she had to go and like prove something, whatnot. It yeah. reminded me of galaxy quest when Tim uh, uh, Allen's in the bathroom and he uh -huh. hears the two people <laughs> and it's like, why does this affect you so much? Who right. the hell are these people? You are a star. Like, in yeah. each situation, like you're, she's the number one, um, or at some uh, in somewhere in there, like you're one of the most famous actresses in the world. Who cares what these two people think mm -hmm. that makes you go off on like that? Just like Tim Allen, like who cares what these two jerks think in the bathroom? Like you have a whole convention center full of people there to see you. So yeah. why does it that affect you so much? And can I can I say for a second that I just love. That Kitty Glywell feels like such a natural part of Cinephile History Fit that she's pulling out Will Johnson level film connections to no. go Galaxy <laughs> Quest to Babylon. Well, Katie, just that someday this will all be yours. I'm telling you. <laughs> you, went, you went even deeper because usually I just re I reference like a Star Trek episode, but you're you're busting out the the layered Star yeah. Trek. Yeah. Galaxy. <laughs> yeah. No, go ahead, but, sorry. but I know that uh, like with. Like for me, I actually would have, uh, I would have rather Margot Robbie have what happened to Brad Pitt happen to Margot Robbie. Yet I mm. see that either or was perfect for their character because it's like okay. you've got this. I mean, everything is within four years. Like you've got this little niche that we have a four years, and then it jumps to twenty two years. Which I have to mm -hmm. say, the uh, aging of Diego Calva was horrible he's supposed Agreed. to be like, what in his like 50s or late 40s you would I mean, think come so. on yeah. people you guys could have th that was lazy yeah. that was yeah. same, really lazy same, same 1927 stubble like nothing really changed yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I mean, it's like he's got a little bit of um his hair receding he's like come on you guys this is i don't know that that i just thought was like so lazy yet when we have that sequence of him looking at the screen i know that you both have like, you know, I don't understand like all it, like to me, that was like just uh, Damon Chazelle doing a cinema paradiso moment. Like, I know. it's like you yeah. see singing in the rain and all he can see is like all the memories he had with all those people mm -hmm. from 1927 um, and on. And it just right. like going back in the heyday of like what is life, even though it was a complete crap fight um whatever and i know in the beginning that i said that it's um i meant to say eyes wide shut instead of boogie nights because eyes wide shut i think definitely we all know um i have a feeling that this film is more eyes wide shut than boogie nights even though there's a lot of boogie nights but like i said there's i could go on with so many films that it reminds me of um like well, not to Scorsese, not to spielberg Nods to, I mean, so yeah. many directors that I think Chazelle likes, but I see like if you had, they're both stars. It's all about the stars and stars burn bright and shine. And then True. they either fade away, which neither one of them wanted to do, or they blow up and they'd rather, you know, have their ending mm. be on their own terms. And mm. I feel like that's what both um, Nellie and Jack Conrad did. Like they wanted, they didn't want to fade away. They wanted to be on their own terms. And um, Nellie, I mean, Margot Robbie did an amazing job, but 
the more I thought about this, like her character really sucked. Like yeah, what she I did agree. to Mara Weaving's character, who was the producer, like once she found out that it was her money, then it's like she broke her nose. And Joseph, like that's some shitty stuff she did. Like she mm-hmm. was, she sucked. And I also never understand how you have these films that are set in the 1920s and 1930s and people lose tens of thousands of dollars. Like, dude, $85,000 is a lot of money now. Mm-hmm. Like that, I feel like could have bought a city in, ni- yeah. in 1930. How do you lose $85,000 gambling? Like it's still, it just blows my mind that it would be that much. But I mean, I think they, they showed with the Tobey Maguire character that he's, I mean, he's on a whole different level of wealth at that point. I oh, mean, yeah. But I, I, I actually wanted to bring up what you just mentioned about the homages, okay? Because mm-hmm. I think <clears throat> there's lots of homages and a lot of stuff. And my favorite film of the year so far is Nope. And, and Katie and I were talking about this, is has a lot of Spielberg homages, even a little Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of stuff in it. I You've also what, said how it has a lot of Carpenter in it, too. Oh, absolutely. Big time Carpenter. Now, here's the thing. Like, people seem to have a lot of fights about this with Quentin Tarantino. Because yes. people say, like, is it homage or bring this up, too. Yeah. yeah it, it feels like it's either homage or ripoff. Yes. And that's what people argue. Now, I think what makes Tarantino interesting is that he, he almost kind of plays like this pseudo curator historian who's like hey remember these films that you actually don't remember from the 60s and 70s and from all over the world i'm going to put them on the big screen and raise them up to mainstream yeah yeah. i think with chazelle i mean i'm not criticizing it because i have no problems with any of those movies eyes wide shut you know i have no problems with kubrick and scorsese and and um there's a little bit of cohen's brothers in this too like there's kind Mm -hmm. of that cohen's brothers energy there's a lot of mem- memories to it, but I think because those are more mainstream and perhaps more identifiable than, yeah. you know, you, you can watch something like, you know, you can watch something like Jackie Brown on its own, but if you ha- if you've happened to have seen Foxy Brown and Coffee, you're like, oh yeah, I get it. Like, I get what he's referencing and I get what mm-hmm. he's homaging to. This, I think, but that stuff is harder to find, harder to watch. It's not as popular, but I think when you I have... Agree. So big, like singing in the rain. So big, like Boogie Nights. So big, like Goodfellas. It's almost. Is it almost too obvious? Well, and and that's, that. That's yeah. where I'm spinning this too. Is like when, for example, like when you're saying like Tarantino's picking. I don't want to say semi-obscure things, but like I like what I like the way you say that he is curating small niche things and lifting them up to celebrate them. Um, and then that way. Chazelle kind of to me did a lot of that in La La Land where you lift up Umbrellas of Cherbourg, you know, you lift up the 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 postmodern musical and he, you know, add those elements, lift those things up, bring it to a modern setting. And I thought he did that in a way where 99% of modern audiences or at least casual audiences probably haven't seen a, a, a demi, you know, uh, musical. So for him to kind of lift and celebrate that in his own very American way, I could dig that. And of course, he brings his modern tools to do it. This one, I'm I'm starting to see what you're seeing, Will. Where by the time we're pointing our we we with our eyes, we're pointing at the screen, going, "Wow, that Alfred Molina scene in Boogie Nights feels a whole lot like the Tobey Maguire scene." And we're mm-hmm. we're pointing at this, we're pointing at that, we're pointing at this, pointing at that, because because of the we're pointing at things that seem so obvious yet spun so 
I, celebratory, yes, maybe homage, you know, like that, that line is very, it's tricky. I mean, I think Chazelle's still doing and telling his own thing, but at the same time, how many things are you going to borrow before we run out of fingers to point? And I, it was tricky there for me. Well, and if I could elaborate on that too, like I think when you bring up something like Tarantino on most of his filmography and you bring up Nope, which I brought up before, having the Carpenter influences and the Spielberg influences and the things like that, the other differences though is that they is like the Tarantino and the and the Jordan Peele in those cases, those specific cases, they also have such shockingly original ideas tied into those homages. Yeah. That point. They, they kind of become their own thing. Like you, it's very much a Tarantino thing. It's not a ripoff of somebody else. It's very much a Jordan Peele thing, not a ripoff of somebody else. With this one, I think the homages are so strong you know, in, in terms of like respecting those filmmakers that it's it's almost like his voice is struggling to get out. And, and it's almost like he's like, I'm not only gonna just do an homage, I'm going to do like a full-on tribute it's almost like a cover song yeah that somebody does like when when like when a band covers somebody else it's like it's the same song might have a different flavor but it's still the same and that and that's why i have trouble with the way this movie kind of unravels because i feel like you're getting a very much of a chazelle doing his own thing in the beginning and then it's it's reverting to a lot of played out expectations that we've seen in movies a hundred billion times before that was gonna that was gonna be my question to kind of you and katie and even i'll answer myself was like beyond the homages what is chazelle's original chunk here and to me the original chunk and i i don't mean to sound like this like woke per i don't i hate that word but um i don't mean to call it out but like i feel like Chazelle's original pieces of this movie that he glues his homages to is no one tells the Giovanna Depo story. You know, we don't get the black artists of this era. That that arc doesn't get a lot of attention in other movies. Um, hmm. Maybe the maybe the fade to black. You know, uh, the the it girl that never becomes it part with Margot Robbie, and then I don't know. If we you know, and then we normally don't have a star. That well, let's just say it. There's not a lot of stars in our Hollywood registry that killed themselves at their prime to the point that where we remember them for their greatness and stop and do all that. So I think Chazelle, had, and then obviously the the Hispanic Mexican kind of like we we don't see that story of the the immigrant dreamer who kind of comes into you know is able to rise into the business where normally those doors might be closed. I feel like and I and I hate that I'm detecting those flavors, but I feel like Chazelle's only. I don't want to say only, but I feel like Chiz- the majority of Chazelle's original pieces are just checkboxes to maybe well, apply representation versus an homage of this and homage of that. And don't forget, like the American actress Anna Mae Wong kind of gets a we have shout out there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have now I I could be ignorant on this. I'm not a huge buff on silent films and the transition to talkies in the 30s, but. Were there a lot of women directors in I, that time? There I was know. one. I'm trying to think of who she was, but I can't think of her. But there was one, but not many. And there's also, I mean, the director who was in Germany, who was, you know, doing all the stuff for Hitler at the time. But that's like going into 10 years down or like nine years down the line, especially during the 1939 1939, 1938 Olympics. Right, right. 
so there were few, but not many. But showing that, I was like, I knew. And Mary Pickford was directing at that time. And to me, okay. I always thought, like, watching it, I thought that Jack uh, Conrad was, is it Conrad? Yeah. Um, yeah. Was supposed to be, like, a combination of, like, Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin with this. Because even though Douglas Fairbanks didn't necessarily shoot himself in the head i mean he basically mm -hmm. kind of drank himself to death and yeah. that's um i mean there's a number of actors who did that because once they started doing the talking and all that stuff they just didn't have the same crowd as um they did before well yeah and i, and I, I mentioned the director because they actually do focus a little bit on this female director like she i'm not saying she's a major character but she seems to be in charge of these huge productions and i just right like i'm not like i said actually I, it's funny that you mentioned the woke thing because me and katie off mic i was telling her like i hate that woke stuff myself i but, do and i'm sorry to even bring it up you know no, no, like, i know but I, no there, it's i think it's justified like i i you know and and i don't know how to approach this whole thing and and forgive me, I, I don't, is it, it's, uh, and I'm trying to look it up on Letterboxd and the, the cast list is kind of all over the place, so I can't find names, but. Um, Ruth Adler. She is played he Ruth, she played Ruth Adler. No, but who is the gentleman who plays the musician who ends up kind of getting his own film roles for a while? Giovanna Depo from Fences. Yeah, Giovanna nice Depo. Actor. Oh, Giovanna Depo. Okay, sorry, I was, okay. I, I think that, um, like, that's another one that, you could maybe it plays a little bit to Don's point. Like to me, that storyline is very undercooked. It's like it's almost like you oh, could take it, it should have been it, it should have been its own movie done by somebody else. Like right. tell, and I, and I, go tell that story for 90 minutes, you know? Yeah. And I also, like I said, this movie towards that end, like you start to see, like as soon as they as soon as they were indicating, as soon as they started talking about how the Southern audience is not going to accept that he's a lighter skinned black man. Mm -hmm. And they give him the makeup. I was like, this is, I called it in the theater. I was like, okay, he's going to do it. He's going to regret it. And then he's going to leave that life behind and move on. And then he's going to be in that small bar at the end, getting back to yeah. his room. You know? mm -hmm. It's a typical it is. story that's played out. And, and that's what I'm saying is when you start the movie with elephant shitting on people and people peeing oh. in each other's faces, yep. you, you, that that shock, that sudden shock of going to the played out. Look, ninety. I understand ninety percent of movies usually all end the same. We get that. I, I'm not criticizing it for not having an original idea. Mm -hmm. It's just that the ability to go so far in one direction only to end in the most obvious way. It's kind of like my favorite. Uh, my favorite football movie of all time is any given Sunday by Oliver Stone. Yeah. And to me, the first, it's like a two hour and 35 minute movie. The first two it's hours, a beast. it's the first two hours and 10 minutes is unflinching stuff. You never see in football movies. You know, you're getting in the trenches with like what's going on in the locker room and the people's homes and the news reporters and what's going on with the stadium and the medical staff. It's, it's unconventional sports movie storytelling. And then those last 20 minutes is, exact it's a john logan problem with anyone who knows a john logan script knows this that he has john this logan. Problem. but yeah. the last 20 minutes is your standard 
last second, got to score the touchdown, sports cliche thing. And it mm-hmm. really hurts the movie. And I think this movie had that potential to go into a very unique way and then just sputters into the expected. And that is, to me, the biggest, not crime, but shame of it, is that you start out so strong and then you just end so weakly, in my opinion. Katie, where do you feel about that? See, I feel like you once most of these characters, besides Brad Pitt's character, everyone else in the film, well, actually, no, uh, Lady Faye Zhu, she kind of has a following. But even her following is somewhat fading, um, as mm-hmm. you see when she's with her parents. At uh, And the only way they can like help a customer out is to have her come down and um, have her sign some pictures. But the other three characters are up and comers there. It's like you see their rise to like meteoric standard uh, meteoric uh, capacity in like in a four year time. And Jack Conrad, he's already there. He already is that person. So mm-hmm. you see them rise and then they have to fall. And yeah. once they um, it's the obscurity, like if no one knows who you are, if no one can judge you, if no one can have like that hold on you. It's like, you know, we've got the studio's money. You've got the agent's money. You've got this much. Then you can yeah. do whatever you want. Like you don't have to succumb to people's uh, whims and all that stuff. But once they, um, it's, that's what I feel like is this, the film is. It's like, it's the, yeah. why do people want to be in the movies? Why do people love that magic? And, you know, you want that. It's like both, Nellie and Manny said, it's like, I want to be on a film set. I want to be, I want to be a film star. But then why? It's like, because that's where I'm supposed to be. It's like, but they don't think about what will happen after that. And why should they? Because they just want their dreams to come true. But then sometimes those dreams turn in nightmares. It's just Mm. that effect with Palmer. It's like, he's, you know, he had his dream. It's like Manny got him to those films. You know, he became, he wasn't just the trumpet player. He had his own thing. But then once um, they, like Manny had to tell him to do that. He was like, nope, I'm out and I'm holding on my pride. I'm going to keep whatever I have and like walk away. And he did like, Hmm. he's the true, he, you know, he has the, I think not the best arc. Well, kind of. Yeah. He has the best arc of of that and Faye. I mean, even Faye undercooked, like, it's, it's still a very, very good arc, you know? Yeah. And then even Faye, like, she's like, I'm going to go to Europe, which kind of reminded me of like a Josephine Baker kind of thing. Like when mm-hmm. Josephine Baker was criticized in Hollywood, it's like, fine, I'll just go to Europe and go there where people love me. And then you don't, re- you don't really see what happens to her. But yet when she looks back and thinks of, I mean, like, you can see in her eyes, like, that's what's going to happen to Brad Pitt. Um mm-hmm. And that was the thing, like, with Manny, when he's, like, crying at the end, like, thinking about all the memories he had with those times. Like, yeah, they were hell. Like, I mean, all he tried to do was help people, like, make these goals that they wanted to do. Like, make them stars. Do all this stuff. Like, he had a huge rise from, mm-hmm. uh, from where he was. He was just an assistant, basically getting, like, um, spatterings of shit on him from an elephant to like being like almost in charge studio of the studio. Like, yeah. I mean, that's huge. Oh yeah, studio exec. He kept saying it was studio exec, which is huge. But it's like, you know, he also has to succumb to people's needs and wants. And it's like, okay, well, you can't do this. Now you have to do this. And okay. people don't think about that. Like, um, 
but that's one of the reasons why I love the film because it's yeah. like me it's you know it's that devil advocate um thing it's like you know be careful what you wish for because then when you get it what are you gonna do and oh. that's a lot of the things that happens with the movies it's not yeah. necessarily all the shiny parts and shiny things that happen mm -hmm. but it can be absolutely amazing but once you lose that magic it's a hard drug to take well um, um i think i got a one i got i have a wonder of an idea here that i don't want to say maintains that severity well here let me th say it also maybe helps the film as a whole what if this film ended when after the toby Maguire stuff where you know um where you don't go 22 years in the future what if you don't have that epilogue and the movie ends with jack's death uh a lost nelly and uh fleeing to mexico diego you know um or and that then it just kind of i don't want to say if you obviously you need some some sutures to kind of tie that ending a little bit but there but like if you don't come back and have your nostalgia moment which i know is a big boost to the movie but if you ended it hard would it be treated more appreciably for yes. the severity yes because well first and save all, you 20 minutes not gonna lie you know well and, <laughs> and and you know first of all when when uh when an actor or an athlete is away from the spotlight you know what do they call it they call it lost in the wilderness right it's a mm. wilderness period you know when you think of the wilderness you just think of being in the middle of nowhere in obscurity like trying to figure things out right and I think that kind of some of the main point of that movie, especially with Gene Smart's amazing speech or monologue, is that, yeah, like, um, the person may die, but the memory will live on. And I, right. and I would have loved for, even though I'm not hot about Pitt killing himself, um, I did like Margot Robbie literally fading away into obscurity, quite literally into the dark. Like many actresses did, you know, I yeah. thought that was really fitting too. Yeah. And I yeah. think that if now, and, and think about it, I mean, you know, I mean, in this day and age, you can film a movie anywhere and there's really no Hollywood in the sense of like, you have to go to Hollywood to make a movie. But yeah, in 1930, like a studio executive who had all this power suddenly uh, driving off to Mexico. I mean, how much farther, you know, in terms yeah. of, I know it's not far miles wise, but in terms of your reach in the industry, like how much farther and obscure could you get than going to another country, you know, away from Hollywood. So I think the bleak ending would be a perfect bookend to the beginning, which is I agree. people I really agree. Yeah. People, you know, it, it's in both situations, the people are, you know, throwing their lives away, but in just, just different, they just have different states of mind, you know? So it's just, I, I, I think it would have been a perfect capper and it would have been a, a less, I don't want to say predictable because I don't think this film is, don't get me wrong. I don't think this film is predictable because I, I hate that phrase. Cause like I said, most sure. things are, but I, I think you would have less of a heavy hand and more of an impactful, I mean, and, and, the Gene Smart monologue is brilliant. It's it's wonderfully acted and it makes sense, but it's also so on the nose and almost unnecessary for what they're trying to say. Like you could have Brad Pitt go through what he's going through without that speech. Mm. You know, so I don't know, it just kind of 
I, I think you're right on, Don. If it ended there, I would have been like, okay, this. I probably would have bumped it up a whole full star. I would. I would, I would too, because then to me, that movie's making a making that statement that the tale, the, the darkness statement. You know, through all this debauchery, happy endings are hard to find. Whereas mm-hmm. I'm gonna, whereas I'm gonna manufacture. Well, now I'm glad Diego's character got got a got a nostalgic happy ending. Like if there's one guy that gets one. That's a nice one. And maybe driving to Mexico is the only one he needs versus coming back and having, as Katie said, the cinema paradiso moment where I don't know if any of these cinema paradiso moments have worked in any of these movies so far. Like, I think the one where it does be in a future recording here is when you see Spielberg's young kid watch movies that inspire him to go make movies that works. But like, but like, but like, oh, there's yeah. Yeah. But like, but in, but like in empire of light, I, I don't I can't give that much credit to Hal Ashby's being human or to like lift Olivia Coleman out of every fog of mental illness she ever had. Like it just it hasn't hasn't worked very good. So, yeah, I know. I agree with you, Don. I um, but I do I do think with this, it's just with all the darkness that we see in those last with those last three characters with. um mm-hmm. Diego, Margot, and Brad for uh, him to Manny to come back and um, even visit the studio, even um, and you know visit the studio even though he doesn't go in it, um, whatever. Um, and but then be in the theater and just see, you know, just rem- It's it's like he's reminiscing on screen, like everything that singing in the rain is. Is I can actually, I would not be mad if what you guys are saying, if they would have ended it with Diego just going off into the night and um, going to Mexico. I think that would have been a solid ending. I do like the cinema, dare, cinema, dare, um, cinema parody, so, which I call it um, moment, even though I thought it was stupid that they didn't age him more. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree that um, mm. I can see it with the darkness. I do want to note though okay they have it i forgot to mention this pj Byrne, who played the second ad yes career best performance star maker i, I mean he want to give him an award because it was amazing how yeah. accurate as a second ad he uh-huh. is <laughs> just when the door opens shut the fuck up you know, yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh. i remember him in wolf of wall like, street you know yeah, he. It, when you look up his filmography and realize how many places he's been, and, and, and oh, you're like, yeah. oh, it's the guy, you know? And yeah, he's, oh, he's fantastic. That whole scene of like trying to get that scene right felt very, well, I mean, it felt very Scorsese to me. It felt like Wolf of Wall Street. Felt very, you know, well, Singing in the Rain too. Directly was, from Singing in the Rain. I mean, yeah, definitely. But yeah. no, I, I, and I want to talk about that montage in a minute, but I also think that, that the fact that he ends the film on Singing in the Rain. Mm. is a little bit of hindsight of you know someone oh, who was yes, alive at that yeah. time because people forget that at the time singing in the rain came out uh much like a lot of other movies that get fame later like um uh, i always forget the goddamn name of this uh uh what's the christmas movie that everybody freaking loves that they watch every year even though it's not really it's a wonderful life it's a wonderful life it's a wonderful life oh yeah no no it's a wonderful life like singing in the rain was not that accepted as a classic right away actually people mm-hmm. thought it was tacky and mm-hmm. like played it I, I don't even think it even got a best picture nomination i know that um of one of the actors did and stuff like that but like it it took like repeat viewings later before people were like oh singing in the rain is a masterpiece so 
the fact that he's in a crowded theater watching it and being so moved by th- singing in the rain is a little like a little bit of hindsight playing into it because I don't think audiences were as enraptured with it as they would become later, but much like other films like Citizen Kane and, you know, uh, all that other stuff we mentioned. But I do want to talk about the montage because there was something in the montage that really made me happy uh-huh. because you guys know that I'm, I'm a defender of art at all levels, you know, mm-hmm. I'll sit down and watch the shittiest horror movies ever made for, you know, $50,000. And then I also love things like Marvel, right? Amen. So, yeah. So, so the one thing that I really loved about is that any other director, especially one that has, let's say, very specific tastes, you know, like I always think, no, no offense to anybody, but like, usually if you're really into jazz, I'm mostly going to think you're a little bit of kind of a pompous ass. Like, I just, <laughs> because I mean, it's you know, so true. Yeah, so, I get it. And, and it would have been really easy for Chazelle in that montage to put in a bunch of like, you know, sight and sound only, you know, mm. world renowned, you know, international cinema clips, right? Yeah. But he fucking plays the Matrix. He's got Terminator 2 in there. He's got, and I love that because it was like, it, it almost felt like a, a, a score for the nerds a little bit. Like, <laughs> hey man, these movies mean stuff too. Like, I think mm-hmm. any other director that's maybe not as talented would throw in, you know, they, like, you know, I don't know. I and mean, they're not saying these movies are bad, but, you know, they just throw in like the 400 blows or something. And people, like, most people in the audience would be like, what does that even mean? I don't know what that is. You know, mm-hmm. or, you know, a, a Kira Kurosawa film or something. But the fact that he, like, put a lot of mainstream, recognizable films in there that are, that we recognize now as impactful. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a really nice touch because it, it, because yeah. you can have like these arty inspirations, and Chazelle might be one of these more prestigious directors, but he doesn't forget what inspired him, and some of that stuff is the most mainstream popular culture of the day, and I and I, yeah. I really love that touch personally. For me, I was just like, all right, thanks for showing some of these movies, man. Like, because I I, I do think we do kind of live in this era now where. You the know, gatekeepers not, are strong. Yeah. Well, the gatekeepers are so strong, and it's nice to see a mainstream film by a prestige director throw out, like, you know, Robert Patrick's face melting and, you know, the Matrix sequences. And there was a couple other, what were some of the other mainstream movies they threw in there? Like, Star Wars stuff. is in there. Yeah. Star Wars is in there. I think. Um, I'll have to watch it again here at home. I got I it on digital. So, yeah. I don't remember all of it, but I remember it being like, I, I just remember it being very sci fi. Yeah. Well, remember, heavy, you know. Well, well remember, I, Chazelle is like what thirty-eight. Like this would be his. That eighties would be his. Like the way that I mean, we're both about a decade older than this guy. And it, you, Katie, I don't know your age, and I'm not going to put it out there on television or on podcasts here. But um, well, we're 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 eighties kids. Where and we're where our parents loved the seventies movies, which was probably our two pieces of gateways. So for him to be, for him to have those nineties be as cool to him as they were to us when that was our prime versus our childhood. Oh yeah. That's kind of him showing his age in a good way. No, I, I loved it. I, so even though I'm not a fan of the montage necessarily like Don, I know you're. Yeah. See, I, 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 I mean, if, if all, if you're one note, if your ending note of, of homage and if your ending note of Coda is, just sing in the rain which is plenty i don't need i don't need the fast forward of time to everything else that maybe matters yeah he, no. 
I thought the homage, like, especially with those movies that you just mentioned, those are all movies that kind of changed the game for cinema. Like, it's true. Uh, sure. T2 changed everything, like, that happens after that for, mm-hmm. um, like, visual effects. And then you have uh, The Matrix that changed everything after that. Yeah. And um, so I thought the, when they were doing a lot of the montage, that was supposed to be you know, movies that really change the game, you know, moving forward with movies. And yeah. I mean, as much as... Uh, and is that supposed to echo to the change between talking and, you know, talking and silent and whatnot? Yeah. Is that we're going there? Okay. okay. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happened after, because I mean, practical effects were always the main game and all that stuff. But then after uh, T2 and stuff like that, oh, I mean, yeah. visual effects became like in... Jurassic Park and stuff like that. I mean, that just changed the game with everything. And now practical effects are, I think, making a huge comeback because people want to see that. But I love that. I love that story from Jurassic Park about that they were going to do stop motion. And guys on the side were like, I think we can do this in CGI. They did it on their own without approval from the studio or Spielberg or anything. And they, they did like a model and they said, they showed it to Spielberg on their own time for free and just said, look, we can do this in CGI. And Spielberg took that shot and said, all right, we'll do it that way. And <laughs> the next thing you know, you've got Jurassic Park, which to this day still looks oh, yeah. absolutely incredible. You know, it's, and um, like changed the game, you know? So oh, yeah. is, is Chazelle, and this has been something that kind of he gets low key, uh shade for is is this an arrogant thing to put his movie and himself among that list of game changers is he is he i i mean i love the guy but uh is he that guy is he on that level what uh did he throw in are you talking like literally did he throw in like his own movie in that no 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 but what i'm saying is like to to have his movie this big but you know this his largest opus to date evoke you know evoke and put itself next to the all the game changers is that a little ballsy no i think it's i think it's serving is it a genuflect more than a rubbing elbow okay okay yes i absolutely think that i i think katie what do you think on that yeah absolutely I think is it's he, just, is he genuflecting or is he putting himself there like, hey, I'm just as good? No, I think he's um I don't think he's putting himself just as good. I think he's just showing respect that it's like, you look, I mean, you can be as you know, you can be on top of the world, but things can change within an instant instant. And it's like it goes back to Gene's smart monologue. It when yeah. it's like, why do they hate me? It's good like point. it's it just happens. It's there's no reason. And like she says, like your time today is through, but you'll spend an eternity with the angels and ghosts and mm. you know, what more can you ask for? And that's when he was like, thank you. Now I feel better. I mean, yeah. I'm pa- obviously paraphrasing that, but yeah, no, there's I, just yeah. you. It's like, you have to ride this ride as you can, you know, as long as you can, as far as you can, as high as you can, but know that at some point that roller coaster is going to go down and it may not come back up. Mm. Well, it's interesting that that it's an interesting time for this movie to come up because there is a lot of, discussion for better or worse out there right now about what a movie star is you know um we've had we've had two instances this year the first one is tom cruise i mean he's been labeled this year the last true movie star right Mm -hmm. and then in recent weeks there's been another tarantino thing and i actually people will be surprised i actually agree with him 100 percent, and it's not a diss at marvel but you know he was saying that 
it seems like character types and or personalities or figures from other things are the star, not the actors portraying them. And it's just interesting to see that because it's interesting to see that discussion about what a star is in this case, like how it, how it changes, because yeah, like if you look at some of the biggest stars right now, you know, in terms of box office and movies, like, yeah, Chris Evans is a star, but he's not, he's not the same type of movie star that existed 20 years ago because he has to embody a popular figure that he's representing, not, the figure himself. No one's going to Captain America to watch Chris Evans. They're going right. to watch Captain America. I think so I found um, that very interesting, you know? Yeah, I think the difference with the movie star thing is is the range, I, or at least where Tom Cruise is at. Like, Tom Cruise maybe is settling into a part of his career now where it's, it's Ethan Hunt, it's big stuff while he still can. But we, I mean, but everyone still remembers that Tom Cruise has done has just a range and a resume and a portfolio of all kinds of different things. Whereas maybe today's movie stars kind of get it, you know, obviously grab a big character, run with it, and then kind of stay in that wheelhouse and don't all the, all the time challenge themselves. Um, At least, at least this, I hate to put the Marvel guys out there, but like Dwayne Johnson kind of plays Dwayne Johnson, every movie, Chris Evans for better or worse. I know he's trying still is kind of Chris Evans, every movie. Whereas, Maybe it's a little. He's he's trying. Know, yeah. well, Hemsworth, not so much, you know. But um, but like it, it's. But you have to go one generation back a little further to to people who have range. Like Matt Damon it plays different parts every time. Leonardo DiCaprio plays different parts every time. Like just one generation back from where we are now, you've got people who came up with came up emulating people who did everything. The the Redfords and the Newmans who would who would who would, might still always look like Redford and always look like Newman, but be a different part every time. Well, it's funny you say that because it, it ebbs and flows because then you would get, I mean, early Jack Nicholson, early Pacino, and, and even I would say up to like 2000s Pacino, De Niro, mm-hmm. you would get that and then they kind of settle into that character, that one yeah, character. I think everybody play. does. And I think but we I, see a Jack Conrad. I think we see a Jack Conrad that has settled. Because well, something tells me he played a thousand things and then found his spot and he's done. Well, and I also think it's funny that they got Brad Pitt to do that role because Brad Pitt himself. I mean, if you uh-huh. really, if you really, no, I think Brad Pitt is a phenomenal actor and he knows his place. I don't think I've ever seen a Brad Pitt movie where he has been miscast. Maybe meet Joe Black. I don't know. But, mm. but like he kind of knows what lane to go in, you know, like he knows just the right yeah. amount of humor when it's a comedy role. He knows the intensity for the drama roles. He knows that balance really well. And I, I, I think that he is almost in a sense, you know, people are talking about Tom Cruise. He's almost kind of like the last of the old school movie stars too, because yeah, he is almost more personality than actor. I, I and I, I don't mean that at as this a point. Diss. Sure, no, I don't yeah, mean that as a diss because I think he's incredibly talented. And I was just showing my daughter for the first time Moneyball the other day, and that's a Ooh. that's a very subtle performance. Like it's not a. It I mean, he is loud sometimes because he throws his desk around and beats things up because he's mad, but. What I mean is it's not like a flashy performance. It's a perfect, but, you know, also like he kind of uses the same voice a lot, like when he's doing mm-hmm. his comedic stuff or he's doing certain stuff. It, it's, it, I think it's brilliant casting. I think the fact that he did this and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which also have similar vibes there. That was the other one. I, I made a joke on Facebook that I was watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Origins. 
because it was, you know, you have half the cast or more, two thirds of the cast of that movie. And it's also kind of a Hollywood tale uh, yeah. from back in time. But um, no, I, I, I think that him playing Cliff Booth and this character is, like, he's kind of having this career. It's almost like he's commenting on himself in a way. Like he's chosen yeah, sure. to be like, I am kind of each of these guys in a way, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's, and, and I was, I was telling Katie that um, off mic that if anything about Damien Chazelle, I, I really like Whiplash. Uh, I might, I might even love it. I don't like La La Land and I like this. I, I did not, I have not seen First Man. What I will say is that regardless of the movie, uh, he gets powerhouse performances out of his actors. I mean, it's yeah. true. I mean, even La La Land, which I did not like, Ryan Gosling is amazing in that with, in terms of his comedic timing and his presence and his, his uh, you know, uh, I don't know, his aura. You know, Emma Stone's great. But Whiplash, I mean, it's probably the best J.K. Simmons things we ever saw. Miles Teller was kind of pushed up a little bit into a different echelon of actor. Mm-hmm. And, and this one, I mean, regardless of what you say, Pitt is amazing. Margot Robbie is amazing. The supporting cast is amazing. So regardless, you're going to get fantastic acting on every level from even, you know what? I mean, even Tobey Maguire, I mean, I, I think is pretty fantastic in this movie. Like he's really good. Like I, I, I've never, and this could be my fault. I've never taken him too seriously as an actor. I don't know if it's the Spider-Man effect or just, I kind of see him playing the same kind of thing all the time, but I thought he was really great. And I think that's a good director getting a good performance out of somebody. So Katie, Katie, how do you feel about this whole movie star aura that we're going on with this tangent here? Well, with the movie star aura, there's a number of things that go along with it because you have the actors that want to win awards, that want those accolades, that can destroy their bodies for them. And mm-hmm. a lot of the times with, with I feel like with um, quote unquote movie stars, I mean, Tom Cruise, I mean, he's doing his own stunts. But he's not going to those extremes that you see Christian Bale going to or Robert De Niro used to go to with the up and down with the weights and all that stuff. And to me, that is what uh, I mean, they're still doing great performances. Like I do see Chris Evans doing um, range. I mean, I think Knives Out is completely different than Captain America. Yeah, I think um, what is it, the gray man he did with Ryan Gosling? Totally yeah. different than Knives Out and Captain America and all that stuff. But I mean, studios need box offices, and uh, I think yeah, Tom Cruise is a bona fide movie star. I mean, he goes to all of these screenings. He you know he wants to have that big you know opening at the Brahmin Chinese theaters like you used to have like back in the yeah. heyday of Hollywood like the flash and the glamour and that's one of the things that makes people you know the um, magic of movies and everything but some people just want to act and some people just want to make these characters and you know do these things not necessarily for the fame but just to expand who they are like i think of the character actors that I'm mm-hmm. loving like Paul Walter Glazer and Andrea Riseborough. Like she is a chameleon. Like, like right. every single movie that she's in, she's just so completely and vastly different. Like she's mm-hmm. been in three or four this year, and like you wouldn't recognize her from right. any of the um photos that you could take of any of her characters. And that's how good she is. 
And to me, she's a movie star, but I understand she's not. She's well, an actress. Yeah. And it, it's different. I think um, I, I think I put my finger on the line between it is um, at least the way I just define it is is effortless, effortless effort where a movie star could like like take your Tom Cruise's, take your Chris Evans's and even your Dwayne Johnson's. Um, They can just show up and they've got it. They've got the charisma. They can, you know, deliver your lines, deliver your parts, be, you know, be bankable, all those things like that. Whereas actors. The, it's not effortless effort. They really, really, really have to dive. The, yes. the Christian Bale levels, the Andrew Rice Bros levels. You know, you have to go for it. And we all, and I, I'll call this back to Will, where, you know, we do our Lawrence Olivier joke all the time, like my dear boy act. You know, and I, I like that. I like that a movie star has that shorthand of like, I'm just going to show up. I know my chops. I know my strengths, and I'm going to act. Whereas an actor is going to like. Oh, overdo it for the sake of a, a level of quality and genuineness to it that is just still very extreme. Yeah, yeah. But I will go along with what Will said: is that Damon Chazelle does get amazing performances he sure does. out of people. Like for me, I know in Whiplash, he said J.K. Simmons um, and Miles Teller. I thought that brought Paul Reiser back to uh, mm. mainstream because. I completely forgot about him for so long. And then seeing him play Miles Teller's dad, I was like, okay, Mm. dude, where have you been all these years? Like, that was an amazing performance. But yeah, I mean, this was that. Then he got Stranger Things, and now my kid knows who he is. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that was definitely J.K. Simmons' movie, even though Miles Teller, I mean, again, phenomenal. But but if you look at all the people who had. like minuscule minuscule parts in this film that tells you like how much they want to work with damien chazelle i mean you got spike Spike jones Jones. olivia wilde samara Uh weaving i mean all these people that uh i mean many people won't even recognize olivia wilde because she's in it for so small i know will you didn't um you couldn't you knew spike jones was somebody but you didn't know what his name was and it's like Mm -hmm. i see him and i'm like oh my god look at that Oh my God, look at that. And I'll, I'll say, yeah, I'll say this Spike Jones greater than David Lynch in terms of film directors playing film directors. Oh, well, uh, we're going to talk about We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about We'll talk about that next episode because yeah. Yeah. that is um, like, not yeah. only do I think Fableman's is one of my favorite movies of the year, but like, the capper with David Lynch is, is just it's, no. It's it's a damn it's a damn good part, and we'll get to it. But I mean, I'll take, I'll that take actually is probably my Lynch is probably my favorite cameo of the year. But Spike Jones was the Spike Hilarious. Jones. I think is um is more than a cameo just because it was extended oh, yeah, big part, so yeah. long and in different scenes and yeah. whatnot. But sure. one little insight that I told Will before um we were recording, I don't like I think this was a little jab that she did when um olivia wilde was in the car with brad pitt and brad pitt was doing that horrible italian accent that was very <laughs> uh reminiscent yep. of yeah. and she was just like screaming at him so when she said i'm gonna divorce you and stuff like that and she says a line it's like and she screams and it's like you're from shawnee now i picked up on this i don't know how many people will uh Jason Dacus is from Shawnee, Kansas. <laughs> so when I heard oh, that, I was boy. like, oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Not like it's a big deal, but it's like, hmm, 
that's that's a little nod to something. I don't know if that was a slip because, I mean, Brad Pitt's from Missouri and he's from Springfield. So she could have put that in. But instead, she's, you know, slipped and said Shawnee, which isn't that too, wasn't much farther from Springfield. It's a, it's, it is a few hours. It's in Kansas. It's like three hours. Mm-hmm. Right? But still uh, being from that area, I was like, hmm, interesting, interesting. I don't know if that's written. I don't know if that was just a little ad lib, but I thought that was a little interesting note on there. Mm. Sure. Um, closing thoughts to the dais of three here. Uh, go ahead, Katie. You go first. Uh, as I stated, it's possibly my favorite film of the year. I still have a lot of catching up, but I mean, this goes through the mix of the magic and mayhem that goes along with making movies. Uh, good or bad, shining lights and the darkest steps. Uh. It's a love that you have or you don't. And, you know, just be careful what you wish for and ride that ride as long as you can. Um, you know, I, unlike La La Land, um, I, I would like to watch this again at some point and just kind of, you know, film screenings are tough. You know, I saw this at a film screening and it's, it is tough, just like it was with Blonde, <laughs> though that movie was heavy too. Um, it, it's hard to see a three-hour movie, you know, after you've worked all day and, you know, um, been taking care of things, especially if you're a teacher and it's super stressful. So I, I would like to see it again. I'd like to, I'd like to, to get another perspective on it at some other point. You know, these are my initial reactions to how I felt, but um, it's, I gave it three and a half. Uh, that, that's not the perfect rating, but it's not a bad rating. And I think it's something that I would, not only would I like to watch again at some point, and kind of dig deeper into it, but it's something that I I would recommend people see and form their own opinion on it. You know, I'm never going to tell someone not to see a movie, but you know, if people do listen to my opinion or somebody else's opinion, I'm, I'm saying go see it. So I, I can I can still recommend it, regardless of any issues I have. Yeah, I guess I'll close and say um it deserves every chance it's going to get at the arts and technical under the title uh, categories that it does. Uh, costume i mean i i know katie and i are big fans of the don't worry darling costumes and i probably still favor the don't worry darling costumes over this but you know chazelle brings top talent where linus sangren cinematography mary zofri's costumes uh um, production design editing it's all there uh it's just he he is an extraordinary uh filmmaker and artist that i that i will still respect and 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 he's appointment viewing for me um this is a crazy appointment where i don't know if i'll see this movie again like it's just i i got through it i was good with it i'll toe tap that soundtrack i'll I'll play i'll probably be that person who goes to youtube and finds like little clips of it but i don't know if i want the whole three-hour ordeal of it again i'll maybe do it one more time just to soak up the oscar shade of this all because something tells me in about a month or two's time katie will be back here talking oscars with us because we want her and we'll go from that to part um but yeah um i uh it, it's it's easy to be impressed but at the same time i'm sitting here try, just trying to balance it all and I, I i keep going back to that word balance where it's just a challenge but uh no um he's the guy's got cojones and heart to do what he does and i, I always tip my hat at that Awesome. Well, that brings it to my part that I totally forgot about. Okay, follow us on. Tw- oh, you know what? Before I do that, never mind. Don't listen to me. Um, Katie, tell me, tell us where the the fans out there can follow you, find you, talk to you, 
I don't know, other stuff. Uh, you can find me on the Blonde in Front on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm always available for film suggestions. Like I, my day job is working for a dentist, and uh, a number of my patients always ask me what uh, they should watch, what they shouldn't watch, what's on TV, you know, streaming and stuff like that. And I recently gave somebody like a list of things. To, uh, stuff that's streaming on different platforms that they should watch that I absolutely love. But uh, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, and I'm also in um, YouTube. And then I'm also on the uh, Blonde in Front of Fear on Radio 4 and uh, Postmortem Radio. Mm. Nice. Look at this girl getting gigs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's awesome. Um, all right. Now, now back to my outro script that was written by Don for me to say poorly. Okay, follow us on Twitter at Cinephile Fit and on Facebook at Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast. Also find me and Don on Letterboxd. Um, though apparently, if you listen to this episode, apparently that makes me some kind of douche or something. I don't remember what you said about Letterboxd people, but that's me. Thank you so much for your captive audience and social media participation. Cinephile Hissy Fit is a 25YL media podcast. It is brought to you by RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Thank you, Mitch. Please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes, the new Banana Meter, and we are charter members of the Independent Film Critics of America. If you enjoyed this show, Ruminations Radio Network has more where that came from with wonderful programs and interesting hosts. Our show and others are available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.